0: Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke to this parable to them, saying... Now notice just the first few verses there, the first few words. What's the situation from which these three amazing parables, which in a sense are one parable in three acts, but where do these parables come from? They come from this situation, verse 1, where it says, Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. Jesus was speaking to a large number of people, and for whatever reason, a large proportion of his listeners were notorious sinners. They were tax collectors. And I suppose tax collectors have been in the news lately either. There's any tax collectors here with us this evening? Welcome, tax collectors and sinners. (laughs) But you know, back then, for a lot of different reasons, I mean, I could go into it, but you just get the idea. These were people who were known, they had the reputation, and it was deservedly so that they had this reputation of being um, exceptionally sinful, so much so that they were ostracized by the rabbinic Judaism of that day. It was even written among some of the rabbis of Jesus' day that it was forbidden to associate with such people even to teach them the law. Now, can you imagine such a thing? That that if one of these people, a tax collector or a sinner, notorious sinner, were to come to one of these rabbis and say, Rabbi, would you please teach me the law? What would the rabbi respond? No, I can't get that close to you. I'll have nothing to do with it. And that's why it blew the minds of the religious leaders when all these people flocked to Jesus. And Jesus gladly taught them. Jesus said, tax collectors and sinners want to come and hear me and they want to receive something from me. That sounds good to me. It was a remarkable thing that Jesus welcomed them and because, if you notice what it says there, it says in verse 2, they were offended. It says that they complained, the scribes and the Pharisees complained, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And it was all in response to that that it says in verse 3, he spoke this parable to them. Now, again, I just want to emphasize. What we're going to follow with in the rest of the chapter are actually three different parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. But in the midst of these three different parables, there's a sense in which they're all one parable expressed in three different ways, the seeking after something that's lost. So ready for this? First, the lost sheep, verse 4. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Now, isn't this a beautiful story here? He has in mind a shepherd, and a shepherd who cares for a number of sheep, a hundred sheep, Which, from what I understand, back in those days, it wasn't an exceptionally large flock, nor was it an exceptionally small flock. It was just sort of an average kind of flock of sheep. And the shepherd notices that there's one sheep missing. Now, when did he notice? We don't really know. Some commentators suggest that it was the shepherd's habit to count the sheep every night when they came back into the sheep pen. And so he'd count them one by one. Maybe he's bringing the sheep into the sheep pen and corralling them up for the night when suddenly he notices, whoa, wait, I've got 99 here, not 100. You can imagine him hurriedly doing the counting again. I've got to make sure it's 99. I don't know about you, but if it was me, I'd have to count it about 15 times to be confident that it was 99 and not 100. But this was a shepherd. He knew what he was doing, and he came to the No, there's one missing. I have to go and leave the 99 to go and to seek out the one. Now, I have to say that it does seem strange that a shepherd would endanger 99% of the flock for the sake of 1% of the flock. I mean, if you're a numbers guy, this might be torturing you just a little bit. That doesn't really make sense to me. It's not a calculated, how could that work? I don't know. The different people offer different suggestions for this. First of all, it might be that there was more than one shepherd. A flock of a hundred sheep might have more than one shepherd, and so maybe it's one of several shepherds, and he says to the other two guys, hey, I'm going to go out and find the lost sheep. That's possible. Or maybe the sheep were securely up in a pen, and so he didn't have to worry about them. You guys are safe. You guys are secure. You're okay. I got to go out and find the lost one. Or maybe Jesus just wanted to show how radically crazy this shepherd was that he would go out and seek after one lost sheep. Maybe Jesus' whole point, and I don't know, you can just think about it. I'll just throw it out there. Maybe Jesus' whole point was to say, this guy isn't going by the numbers. This guy isn't just doing a strict business-like calculation. He loves and cares for every single sheep. And so he's willing to go against sort of the the numbers, the calculation, and say, I'm going to leave the 99% and go out and seek after that 1%. So what does he do? Verse 4. He goes after the one which is lost until he finds it. It's a dedicated search. He's searching over hill and across the valley and around the boulders and down the gullies. He's looking until he finds it. Now, that sheep could never save himself. What's the sheep going to do? Blow a rescue whistle? Send up a signal flare? Send out a radio broadcast? No, the sheep, and particularly, and you've heard this before, I trust you have, you just understand that there's a sense in which sheep are particularly helpless animals. And so if the shepherd didn't do this radical work of going out and seeking and finding and rescuing the sheep, the sheep would be prey for a predator. Now, right here in this parable, Jesus is shattering the expectation of the religious leaders of his day. Because many of the rabbis at that time taught that God would receive a sinner who came to him the right way. It's as if God stands glorious in his throne and God just kind of says, okay, you sinners, if, if, if you come to me the right way, I will then receive you, which we would believe is true as well. But you know what is a spin which was absolutely unique compared to the rabbinic Judaism of Jesus' day? The aspect of this that is completely different is the idea that God would actively go out and seek a sinner, that God would be that shepherd who would say, you are a lost sheep. I am going to seek after you until I find you, and I'm not giving up. I'm going to be tenacious in the way that I seek after you, you, each and every individual one of you. And what a beautiful, what a tender thing. And what does he do when he finds it? Verse 5 says, he lays it on his shoulder, right? The sheep is without strength, so he lays it upon his shoulder. And then what does he do? Verses 5, 6, and 7 emphasize it, that he comes back and there is rejoicing. I mean, look at the lines, starting at verse 5. He says, they came back rejoicing. Verse 6 says, rejoice with me. And in verse 7, Jesus pointed out that there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. The theme is heavy with joy, joy, joy. Why? Because this answered the great air of the Pharisees and scribes. They complained. And why did they complain? They complained because Jesus was being too happy about sinners coming to him and hearing him. When instead, Jesus should have been outraged. Jesus should have, you know, oh, give me the smelling salts. There's sinful people near me. That's how the religious leaders thought that Jesus should have been. When instead, Jesus said, no, if sinners and tax collectors are coming to hear me, if somehow I can make a connection with them, that's a good thing. I'm rejoicing in that. This is a sign of repentance on their part, and we should be happy about this. The religious leaders were not happy about it, and that's why Jesus had to confront them through this parable and the two that follow. I want you to notice something else here. In verse 7, how it very plainly says that God has joy, that there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, more joy in heaven, than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now, that sheep didn't do anything to rescue himself. He didn't do anything to repent. The sheep didn't turn back and the shepherd say, meet me halfway. He had to go out and rescue the sheep all together. Yet, yet, in the final words of this little one-third of a parable, Jesus reminded them about the need for repentance. Why? Because Jesus wanted the people who were hearing him to know, yes, God received you, but yes, he wants to see the work of repentance in your life. And so that's why Jesus closed this little story about the lost sheep, this beautiful story, with that word about repentance. Well, now look at it as it goes on here to verse 8, talking about the lost coin. Ready? Now we're moving from sheep to coins. Or what woman... Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me, for I found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents now we move from being outside the wilderness, and the scene moves into, into a, 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 a home in Judea in those days, or it could have been Galilee, but just a first century home of that time. There they are, and there's a woman who's lost one silver coin. Now, it's sort of interesting because there are many commentators who believe, and I don't know if we can say this with authority, but at least it's an interesting suggestion. That it was common for married women of that time to wear a headband that was made of ten silver coins, each with a hole in the midst of it. And it would be somewhat of a disgrace or somewhat of a letdown if a woman were to lose one of those ten silver coins. I mean, it was a mark of status, a mark of security, a mark of being a married, secure woman. And so therefore, she was concerned to find it, not merely for the monetary value, but also for what the coin in and of itself represented. So one day she notices, the coin is gone. I don't know how she noticed it. She just knows. Of course, it's easier to miss one out of ten than it is one out of a hundred. But she noticed it. Here it is. The coin's gone. I've got to find it. So what does she do? Notice... She lights a lamp, she sweeps the house, and she searches carefully. I like that pattern. First, she brings light, then there's a thoroughgoing cleaning, and then she sweeps and cleans the house, excuse me, there's a thoroughgoing clean, and then she searches for the coin very carefully with deliberate intent. She kept on looking until she found that coin. And you know, I I love looking through a passage and hearing sort of some creative thoughts about it. And one of the guys I really like for creative thoughts, although this is going to sound strange to some people, one of the guys I like for creative thoughts about a passage is Charles Spurgeon, that great Victorian preacher of England, you know, 150 years ago. But Spurgeon brought something up that I had never really considered before. He said, look at these three parables. What you have first is a picture of the Son seeking the lost. Who's Jesus? The Great Shepherd. Okay, so there He is. The Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd seeking the lost. That's the first picture we have. The Son seeking the lost. Secondly, you have a picture of the Holy Spirit seeking the lost. But it's the Holy Spirit working through the church. Because the church is sometimes represented in the, in the um, Bible as a woman, as a bride. Okay, so here you have the Holy Spirit working through the church. So you've got the Son, you've got the Holy Spirit. Then in the third parable, am I going to spoil this if I say that there's a very wonderful Father in the third parable? Let's just leave it at that. So you have the work of the triune God right there in these three parables, the Son, the Spirit, and the Father working together. But the Spirit works through the church. And here's the idea. The church should be very concerned about seeking after the lost. But look, church, do it like the woman in the parable did it. You want to seek after the lost? First, light a lamp. Bring the light of God's word to people. That's what they need, and that's what we have to deliver. No, I'm not saying neglect basic social action. If you can meet people's needs in a very basic way with medical help or with practical help or with water systems or doing whatever it is that can meet the practical, that's a wonderful thing and can give you an entree. But listen, here's the great news. We can bring them something nobody else can, and that's the word of God, the light of the word of God. So that's the first thing we do is bring light. Then what's the next thing we bring? We bring a careful sweeping of the house. Now, please don't you notice this. Where would be the house that you would look for the lost? Well, I, I think this way the Spurgeon analogized it was, the church needs to be cleaned up. You want to seek and seek after the lost church? Get yourself clean. Get yourself right with God. Publish the light of God's word abroad, number one. Secondly, Do some clean sweeping amongst yourself. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Hey, church, if you want to seek after the lost, listen, don't neglect the personal purity of your own life, the seriousness of your own holy walk. I think it's just beautiful when there's a community of people who say, we're serious about following you, Jesus. We're serious about the light of your word, and we're serious about sweeping our own house and making it as clean as it possibly can. But then what was the third thing that the woman did? Not only did she light the lamp, not only did she sweep around, she diligently, she carefully searched. And there Spurgeon just said, you go after the lost with diligence and with care and with every measure you can. And I just love that picture, that that's how we should be seeking after the lost ourselves, after the same pattern that this woman did, where she lit a lamp, she swept the house, and she searched carefully. But please notice this again, how powerful it is that she did it for a single coin. She didn't just say, well, one coin, one coin among many, who really cares? She didn't say, no, that coin is valuable to me. Same thing with the shepherd and the sheep. Now listen. The great shepherd in heaven cares about that single sheep. Do I? Do you? You know, sometimes the most blessed work that God can do in our life at a particular moment is to just impress upon our hearts the preciousness of the single soul. One single soul before God. No, I know sometimes we start doing the mental calculation. Yeah, Lord, I could see if some celebrity came to Jesus, yes, that could be a very powerful thing. You know what? We've got our heads wrapped around that all the wrong way when we start doing the equation. You know what? I'm sure that God loves that one single celebrity somewhere out there, and he regards them as a lost sheep who needs to be brought home to him. But I want you to understand, The biggest nobodies in the world need it too. God goes after them as well. I'm reading this, studying this. It just impressed so deeply on my heart. Lord, do I care for that one single sheep, that one lost coin the way you do? And I want to. Well, i got to say, I'm heartened in our congregation that we do have a heart for evangelism. I'm heartened that there are people in our congregation who both in their individual lives and as a concerted effort who would say, let's get together. Let's go out there and light the lamp. Let's go out there and sweep the house. Let's go out there and go after the loss. Let's go out to the street market. Let's go out to the individual places we can and do whatever we can. That's a heartening thing. Or can anybody look at it and say, well, good, we're doing enough. Don't have to worry about that anymore. Instead, don't we just say, oh, Lord, we want it to be more and more. Whatever it is we do right now, wouldn't we want to see more done on an exponential basis? That, that would be peace. That would be satisfaction. To have this understanding deep in our heart of the value of every soul before God. Now, When she found the coin, what did she say? Again, it's in right there in verse 9. Rejoice with me. She's happy when she founds the coin. What about you, religious leaders? What about you, scribes and Pharisees? You don't seem to be so happy that a multitude is coming to Jesus to hear him. You should have been happy if it was just one sinner. You should have been ecstatic. Instead, there's seemingly dozens or scores or hundreds coming to him, and you're not happy at all. Listen, according to William Barclay, many of the religious people of Jesus' day had an entire different way of thinking. You see, we would say right along with Jesus, I hope we would say it, at least we'd say it in theory, we need to say it with our life, but we would say, yes, there's joy in the presence of God over one sinner who repents. Yes, amen, we would say that. Do you know what some of the rabbis in Jesus' day said? Quote, There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. Now listen, Christians today must be very careful in the way that we live and conduct ourselves that we don't give people the same impression. Look, this is a great danger when we get ourselves involved in cultural and political battles. I am not saying that the church and especially individual Christians should avoid political and cultural battles. No, we need to be engaged. We need to be engaged as people who live in a culture. We need to be engaged as citizens who are part of a political body. But we must understand there is a danger in our cultural and political involvement. And this is what it is. The danger is to simply think that people who we oppose or who oppose us politically or culturally, we regard them as enemies and we're delighted if they perish. We must always guard against that and never give that impression. But you can see how in the heat of a cultural battle, how in the heat of a political machination, how all of that can be easily expressed. We've got to guard against it. Again, I hope you're hearing me properly. I'm not saying to the Christian church, disengage from culture, disengage from politics. No, no, but be on your guard as you engage. We don't ever want to give the impression, we want to win, we want you to lose, and you know what, if you went to hell, it would be just fine with me. No, no, no. We've got to have breaking hearts, hearts full of love and compassion, even when we make the stands that are appropriate for us to stand in cultural or political arenas. All right, lost sheep, lost son. How about we look at the third one? It's the best one of all. Some people have called this the world's greatest short story. And it's beautiful. I tell you, just studying this, reading this again for this week, I was just touched all over again at the simplicity, the drama, the beauty, the power of this section of God's word Let's just drink it in together. Verse 11. Oh, can I caution you just for a moment before I read verse 11? You know this story. Some of you people, you don't know the Bible at all, but you know this story. Okay, can I ask you that you would just ask God for just a little extra measure of grace right here, right now, to just see it with some fresh eyes? Isn't it possible when we go over passage of Scripture that's familiar to us, it kind of just sounds like the wah, 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 wah in our ears? You know, I know this, wah, 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 you know? Okay, so let, let's just let that go beyond and say, okay, Lord, just open my eyes all over again just to see the power and the beauty of the story. Verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his Father, Father. Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. A certain man had two sons. Now, in some ways, the dramatic part of this parable deals with the younger of the two sons. And the younger of the two sons is a remarkable story, as we'll see, in just as it unfolds before us. But don't you forget the other son. This is a parable about two sons, not just one. So remember that. Two sons, not just one. Okay, what do we know about this son? Well, the younger of the sons came, and verse 12 says that he came to the father, and he said, "'Give me the portion of goods that falls to me.'" Father, give me. Give me something right here, right now. Now, in those days, it is said that this was permitted. It was permitted for a son to demand his inheritance before his father actually died. It wasn't customary. Normally, the inheritance was only divided after the death of the father, but this wasn't completely unheard of. And so Jesus' his listeners go, okay, okay, this is what he did, he asked for this, and it seems kind of cheeky, it's kind of bold for him to ask for it, but okay, I get it, he asked for it, and he receives it, and by the way, isn't it remarkable that the Father gave it to him? But wouldn't it have been justified if the Father would have said, no, I know you, son, You've got all these bad tendencies in you. If I give you this, you're just going to go out and waste it on prodigal living. By the way, do you even know what prodigal living is? Okay, I had to look the word up again in the dictionary, just for my own sake. Prodigal means, more than anything, wasteful excess. Just someone who spends unwisely, who just pours it out, who just has this idea of reckless, foolish, extravagant living. Now, the father could have said, no, I know you, son. You're going to go out and do this. But he said, no, son, I'll give it to you. And he gave it to him. Allowing the son, at least what appears to us, to be absolutely free choice to do what he wanted to with the inheritance. So what did he do? Verse 13, he journeyed to a far country and there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Man, it was clubs, it was parties, it was big expensive champagne, it was the whole nightclub scene, it was doing this, it was doing that, it was the fast cars. I don't know how much money he had, but he seemed to go through it pretty fast. And so after all that, great. And might we say, I mean, I don't think we're reading too much into the text. It was probably a lot of fun while it lasted. There was probably a thrill. There was adrenaline rush. Woo, I can act like a big shot. People love me. Isn't it amazing how people love you when you got a lot of money you're throwing around? Oh, everybody loves me. I'm so popular. Isn't it great? And it's just everything's going one. He's riding high for that season. But notice this, verse 14 When he had spent all, there arose a famine in the land. Now, that's a bad combination of events. Number one, the famine only arose when he had spent it all. But then the famine arose. And I want you to notice something. You see, a lot of the calamity that came upon this prodigal son, it wasn't directly his fault. Did he cause the famine? No. The famine wasn't his fault. But his prodigal life left him in no condition to weather the storms that everybody else had to face. And that's really it. You know, sometimes we say to people, don't live this way, you'll ruin yourself, you'll ruin yourself. And in a sense, it's not so much often that people don't ruin themselves, it's just that the foundation and the structure of their life is so weak that when calamity comes upon them as it comes upon other people, they are crushed by it, and they don't have any strength. There's a huge downturn in the economy, the stock market tanks, and other people can survive. Sure, they take a big hit, but they survive. No, not you. Because you were unwise and you weren't trusting God. And look, it's all fell to pieces for you. You see what I'm talking about? The famine wasn't his fault, but it affected him all the same. And so... He was completely to blame for his wasteful, foolish living. But he wasn't to blame for the famine at all. But then the hunger pains hit him. Verse 14 says that he began to be in want. And verse 15 says that they sent him into the fields to feed swine. He was driven by hunger. He was driven by need. And he accepted work that would be absolutely offensive, positively unacceptable to any Jewish man of that day. I mean, this is just something you didn't do. Not only did you not eat pork, but to feed swine, but to be right there with them, this was just absolutely offensive, disgusting work. I'm sure that when Jesus told this parable, first of all, I'm sure everybody was hanging on every word. And when Jesus said to feed swine, there was probably a, ooh, through the audience. Like, oh, really? Oh, that's gross. How disgusting it is. And then when Jesus said this in verse 16, I don't. Want, I hope I'm not sounding overdramatic or melodramatic, but I wouldn't be surprised that was when the Son of God Himself spoke these words. If a tear didn't roll down somebody's cheek as they heard Him, when He said in verse sixteen, "No one gave Him anything." That is alone. You are in the pig pen. You're in the mire of your own sin. You're paying the consequences. It's your fault. But part of it's not your fault. You didn't cause the famine, but you wasted the money. Part of it's not your fault. Part of it is your fault. All you know is you're in the pig pen. And when you're longing for the stuff that the pigs eat, you're in a pretty low spot. No one gave him anything. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said... How many of my father's hired servants have enough bread to eat and to spare and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I tell you, in some ways, I think some of the most beautiful lines in this, there's so many beautiful lines, but this one, verse 17, but when he came to himself, You see, in his misery, the prodigal son was finally able to think clearly. Before, you could say that he wasn't really himself. Isn't that sort of an exciting idea? That when the sinner is in the depths of their sin, both in the practice of it and then in the consequences of it, they're really not themselves. Isn't that a beautiful thing to go to somebody who's in the depths of their sin? Maybe they're proud of their sin. Maybe they're flaunting their sin. But you can go to them and you can say, this isn't you. Even if you say you love this, you can say this isn't you. You need to come to yourself. God has a higher calling and a higher purpose and a greater love for you than you even seem to have for yourself. You want to seem to identify yourself purely by your sin. This is who I am. And God says, no, I think of you as something greater, something more wonderful. You are made in my image. And there you are down in the pig pen coveting what the pigs eat for their own food. You see, in his rebellion, in his disobedience, he wasn't himself. The prodigal wasn't the real man. The real man was the son who needed to go back to his father. Now, When he started to think clearly in the pig pen, did he start thinking like this? You know what? This pig pen's really dirty. I got to clean it up somehow. Did he think like this? You know what? I need to go to my master and ask for a raise. I don't even have any money to feed myself. Did, Did he start thinking of how to improve his conditions in the pig pen? No. When he started thinking, matter of fact, all that would be a sign he wasn't yet thinking clearly. When he started thinking clearly, what did he say? Home. Father. That was the mark of thinking clearly. That was the mark of sanity. And so he says in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father. I love that. He didn't say, I'll go to my village. He didn't say, I'll go to my home. He said, I want to go to my father. And that's where we need to lead people to. First and foremost, not to a church, not to a congregation, not even to a community. First and foremost, we lead them back to their Heavenly Father. And now, of course, we wanted to get attached to community. This idea of Christian community is very, very important. But first and foremost, people need to make their attachment to God the Father in Heaven. And this is what he was going to say. Did you see it there in verses 18 and 19? This was his whole speech, prepared very well. Father. I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. It's a beautiful prayer of genuine contrition. I've sinned against heaven. Make me like one of your hired servants. By the way, did you see that phrase in verse 18? I have sinned against heaven and before you. That's a complete change of thinking. Do you think he thought that way when he was living high in his prodigal ways? No. But now he could see it. Now he could see the truth about it. If you were to come to him, Mr. Prodigal, there you are, uh, you know, between the nights at the clubs and the high-priced champagne and all the rest. Mr. Prodigal, here you are. Do you think you're sinning against God or man? Where would he laugh at you? Sin. What do I care? Come on, man. The party's going on. It's fun. But now he's awakened. Now he realizes it. And he comes back to God or to his father, and he wants to say this, make me like one of your hired servants. Now please notice the contrast. When he said to God, to to his father, I should say, give me, things got bad. There was a complete turnaround when he said this in verse 19, father, make me like one of your hired servants. Isn't that a beautiful contrast? Now, some people have the first attitude towards God. God, give me, give me, give me, give me. Other people have the more proper attitude. Lord, make me, make me, make me. Transform me, shape me. All right. One other thing I want you to see before we get to sort of the, uh, the sweetest part of the parable. I want you to see this that when he was asking to be simply a hired servant, he was not asking to come into the family. In a household at that time, there were the children. Of course, they had status in the family. Then there were the regular slaves. And the regular slaves were actually sort of a part of the family. But then there were the day laborers, the hired servants. And they weren't part of the family at all. He's asking to come in at this level that's not even part of the family. Not even one of the servants that's really connected. Okay? Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. Well, you know what? I just need to stop right there. Verse 20. You know what's so beautiful and powerful about that? Was he didn't just stop and think about it. I think that there's been a lot of prodigals who are there in the pig pen, so to speak. You know, I'm speaking according to the metaphor of this parable. But a lot of prodigals who are in the pig pen, and they think about it, don't they? They even formulate the speech in their mind. Yes, and they think about repentance, and they think about giving their life to God, and they think about doing exactly what they should do, responding to God in the proper way, and they think about it, and they think about it, and they think about it, but there comes a time where you got to stop thinking about it, and you got to do it. And for some people, that's a very scary jump. They get some comfort from just thinking about it. Sometimes we can replace doing something with just thinking about it. You know, I'm not going to go out and actually help people, but I'm going to think about it. I'm not actually going to go and repent before God and confess my sin before God and man. But you know, I'll think about it. That doesn't cut it, does it? No, in some ways, the most glorious words of this parable, I think I've said that about three times already. Verse 20 where it says, I'll start again. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. It's like he had been looking, right? His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Oh, isn't that sweet? He goes back. He rises up. He goes back. And as he's still rehearsing the speech in his mind, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. See, his father sees him. And the father starts running towards him. Now, again, there are so many surprises in this parable, so many points where Jesus' original listeners would have gasped. They would have gasped at this. Because the father, who by this time obviously would have been an older man, I don't know, late 40s, 50s, whatever it would be, he'd be an older, distinguished man. Those men in that culture, they did not run. I mean, not just because it might be difficult for them physically, but even if you could, it was considered undignified. You just didn't do that. Running was for children. You know, men moved at a leisurely pace, just adult men. That's what you did. And when Jesus said he ran, he ran. And then when he came, can you imagine how the sun felt? He's running out after me. Now, there are some people who think this. And all I can do is offer it as a suggestion that in the parable, the reason why Jesus said that the father ran to the son was because there was such a culture of village identity and pride in that society that that man, having disgraced his father, having disgraced his family, having disgraced his village, that man could have been forcibly ejected from the village and prevented from ever coming in. And the father ran out to meet him so that nobody else could drive him away. And when he ran and he met the son, the only thing he could do is fall on his neck and kill him. I, I always laugh when I read that, fall on his neck. I think of a wrestling move when I think fall on his neck. But it wasn't. He wrapped his arms around his neck. He kissed him. And by the way, the original is very emphatic he repeatedly kissed him. He wouldn't stop kissing him. And then the son, through his tears, through his blusher, he remembers, I got a speech to repeat, don't I? I got something I got to say. And so he begins to say it through his tears. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And it's as if the father says, no, shh, shh, shh. Don't say anything. I know you've repented. You've come back. You've demonstrated. You would have never come back unless you've repented he calls to the servants come bring the best robe we're gonna have a party we're gonna have the most amazing bring out the fatted calf that one that we've been saving for the ultra special occasion bring that calf out we're gonna slaughter it and we're gonna have a welcome home son Now, just imagine at the end of verse 24 when jesus said that aren't there people weeping listening to him They're like, that's the most beautiful story I've ever heard in my life. It's just, yes. And can you imagine, especially, especially, who was around him? Listen, the religious leaders, but so many sinners and tax collectors there. And Jesus is speaking to them, and they're like, that's me. That's I'm the prodigal. I'm the one. And you're saying that the Father wants to welcome me back into his kingdom. The Father wants to bring me into home and wants to receive me as a son, not as a servant. And they're just weeping. They can't believe it. It's so beautiful. It's so powerful. It's so filled with the love of God. And then Jesus paused. A little dramatic embellishment. here. I don't know if he did it. He paused. He cleared his throat. And then he talks about the second son. You forgot all about the second son, didn't you? The first son is so captivating. You forget about the second son. So here we go, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and he, as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, dancing. What's going on here? So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, "Your brother has come home, and because he's received him safe and sound, your brother has killed your father, excuse me, has killed the fatted calf, but he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, "'Lo, these many years I've been serving you. "'I've never transgressed your commandments at any time, "'and yet you never gave me a young goat "'that I might make merry with my friends. "'But as soon as this son of yours came, "'who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, "'you killed the fatted calf for him.'" And he said to him, "'Son, you are always with me, "'and all that I have is yours.'" It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. There's the older brother out in the field. He's working. You know, in some sense, God bless that older brother. He's hard at work. He's faithful in the household, isn't he? Good on you for that, older brother. But when he hears that his younger brother is home and is not being treated with shame and contempt and probation and all the rest, when he hears about the joyful reception that's been given to his lost brother, what's his reaction? It says very plainly there in verse 28, but he was angry and would not go in. I'm angry that he's been received, and I'm going to complain about it. And he says in verse 29 to the father, you have never transgressed, and you never gave me. He was so unappreciative of all that he had. I like what Morrison said about this. He said, every day the older brother had his father's company and the blessed society of home. His father's love was around him constantly, and everything that the father had was his. But what does he say to the father? You've never given me anything. So what does the father do? Verse 28 says, the father came out and pleaded with him. And verse 31 says, son, you are always with me. By the way, I want you to notice something. When he says son, actually in the ancient language, it's even more endearing. He calls him child, child. It's a very warm, endearing word. You can just see the tears welling up in the eyes of the father. He's saying, son, I love you too. Please don't miss this. Please don't miss the love that the father had for the older child. It's pretty easy for us to just draw the lines. Well, yeah, you know, Jesus loved those sinners and tax collectors. Those religious leaders, man, he hated them. He loved to get in their face. No, he loved them too. And the father speaks to the older son with such endearment. I love you. I'm always with you. I care about you. But please don't tell me that it's wrong for us to be happy that our son now has been brought home. You know, if you are or have been or know some prodigals, God loves them so much. The father's heart is open wide towards them. Some of us know what it's like to have in some measure or another prodigal children of our own. Breaks our heart. But we know at least a small taste of this love, of this joy when they come back, when they do well. But don't miss this. It's not just the love for the prodigal. Maybe tonight I'm speaking to Someone who's too religious. You're proud in your religiosity. You find it easy to look your nose down upon other people who aren't as spiritual as you are. I've got good news for you. The Father loves you too. And the Father looks at you with such a warm embrace and wants to draw you in to His presence as well. Let's all go to the Father's house and enjoy the party. Father, that's my prayer. I'm blown away that you seek the lost. You know, Lord, you you would have been justified just to say, all right, here I am, come and find me. But you did so much more. There's not a single person in this room who loves you that you didn't seek them first. And we know it, Jesus. We know that we love you because you first loved us. So, Lord, we pray that you'd fill our hearts. You'd renew our our fervor, Lord, to go out with your light, to sweep clean among us, and to seek carefully, diligently for all who need you. Thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.